This morning we're going to finish looking at this account found at the end of Luke 8 that we began last week. And for a title this morning, we're going to use the words Talitha Kumai. These are the Aramaic words that Jesus spoke to the girl in our text. Now in our text they're translated, but Mark's account of this miracle retains these words. And I've often thought that they were particularly beautiful words. Talitha Kumai, damsel arise. Now last week we focused on the healing of the unnamed woman in verses 43 through 48. And today we'll be looking at Jairus and his daughter. Now last week, or as last week, our focus will again be on faith. The exercise of faith, the trial of faith, and the triumph of faith. Before we begin, let's again go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as always, we're thankful for an opportunity that we have to spend time together in your word. Lord, we pray that as we consider this passage, that you would quicken it to our hearts, to the Holy Spirit. Lord, the different things that we learn here, the different things that are repeated and taught to us in this passage, Lord, we pray that we would take them to heart and apply them in our lives. Do a work in each and every heart here that you would have. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first, the exercise of faith in verses 40 through 42. Now, in verse 40, as we saw last week, Jesus returned from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the people of Galilee gladly received him. They had been waiting for him. They welcomed him when he returned. With their mouths, they honored him. Although, as we will see, their hearts were far from him. Now, in verses 41 and 42, we are introduced to Jairus and his plight. Now, verse 41 begins, There came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, a ruler of the synagogue was an important position. He had various responsibilities related to the worship services that happened in the synagogues. The fact that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue indicates that he was well-known and highly respected in the community. It's also very likely that he had some interactions with Jesus because of the position that he held. Archaeology indicates that there was only one synagogue in Capernaum, and Jesus had ministered in that synagogue. Back in Luke 4, verse 31, we read that Jesus came down to Capernaum and taught them on the Sabbath days. This teaching would have most likely occurred, at least in part, in the synagogue. The synagogue is where the faithful would gather on the Sabbath days, and the synagogues are also where the scriptures were kept. We also know that Jesus worked at least one miracle in that synagogue. Luke 4, verses 33-37, tell us of a demon-possessed man who was delivered by Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. Because of his position as a ruler of that synagogue, it's almost certain that Jairus was present when Jesus performed this miracle. So this was a man who most likely had first-hand knowledge about Jesus and his ministry. He had almost certainly heard Jesus teach and had seen Jesus perform miracles. Jesus had been in his synagogue. But now in our text, we see Jairus go to Jesus. Verse 41 tells us that he fell down at Jesus' feet. Though he was a ruler in the synagogue, though he was a very important man in that city, well-known, highly respected, when he came before Jesus to make a petition, he fell down at his feet. The parallel account in Matthew 9, 18 tells us there came a certain ruler and worshipped him. Now there's no indication that Jairus 
would have been worshiping Jesus as God at this point. But rather, this behavior toward Jesus shows respect and reverence to Jesus as a prophet of God. Now, Luke's account does not tell us what Jairus actually said to Jesus. The end of verse 41 simply says that he besought him that he would come to his house. And the reason for this request is found in verse 42. For he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. Mark's account tells us what he said. He said to Jesus, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. His daughter was sick to the point of death. She may have been in the throes of death when he heard of Jesus' return. And he rushed to him to beg him to come to his house. His daughter's condition was desperate. It appeared to be without hope. But Jairus believed that Jesus could heal her. Now what all he knew about Jesus or believed about Jesus at this point is not clear. But this we know. He had faith. He believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. Now compare Jairus to another person we have seen earlier in Luke's Gospel. The centurion, back in Luke chapter 7, verses 2 through 10. Now in many ways, these men are very similar. They were both important, well-respected members of the community. They both had someone dear to them who was at the point of death. And they both believed that Jesus had the power to heal that person and to restore them to health. But notice also some differences. The centurion was not a Jew. Now, he had helped the Jews build a synagogue. The Jews considered him a good man. You will remember that they told Jesus that he was worthy of a miracle. But he was not a Jew. Jairus was a Jew. And not only a Jew, but a prominent man in his religious group. He had an important job in the local synagogue. He was very devout. He would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And as we have already mentioned, he was much more likely to have first-hand knowledge about Jesus Christ and his ministry, the gospel he preached, and the miracles that he performed. Now, if you were to separate these two men from the accounts we have of them in Scripture, you might think that Jairus' faith would be greater. He appears more devout. He had greater access to the Scriptures. He most likely had first-hand knowledge about Jesus. And yet, it is the centurion's faith that is remarkable. Listen to what the centurion said to Jesus back in Luke 7, verses 6-8. through He did not go to Jesus himself, but he sent friends with this message. Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority." having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goes, and another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. The centurion said to Jesus, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. You have authority. I understand authority. You don't need to come to my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. In response to this profession of faith, we're told that Jesus marveled. And in Luke 7, verse 9, he said, I say unto you, to the crowd that was with him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Now compare that to Jairus in our text. He had faith, also, that Jesus could heal his daughter. 
Remember, he said to Jesus, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. He believed that Jesus could do this. But he didn't talk about Jesus' authority or power. He didn't say, your word is sufficient, Lord. Just say the word and my daughter will be healed. He asked for Jesus to come and to lay his hand upon her. Now, as we look at these events from a distance of 2,000 years, and we analyze every nuance that's recorded for us here in Scripture, we might be tempted to look down our noses at Jairus, maybe berate him for his lack of faith. Shame on you, Jairus. Why couldn't you be more like the centurion? You should have been better. You had a greater revelation. Didn't you know that Jesus could simply speak a word and heal your daughter? He didn't need to go to your house. He didn't need to lay his hands on your daughter to heal her. What kind of faith is this? I'd be surprised, Jairus. Jesus even gave you the time of day. Now I'm exaggerating, but to make a point. We might not be so direct, but this is often the way that we think about people and faith and our relationship with God. Faith that is not marvelous, like the faith of the centurion, is it even worth having? Look at how Jesus responded to Jairus, or Jairus. Jesus did not challenge him on this point. Jesus did not rebuke him for a lack of faith. Jesus did not correct Jairus and tell him about his power and his authority, that he could simply say the word and heal his daughter. What did Jesus do? The end of verse 42 tells us that he went with Jairus to his house. As he went, the people thronged him. Jesus went with Jairus to help him and to heal his daughter. And we learn from Jesus' response to both the centurion and to Jairus that strong faith will be rejoiced in and weak faith will not be rejected. You may not have all the faith you desire, but do not let that discourage you in prayer and in seeking the Lord. The Bible does not say, Seek ye the Lord when your faith is strong, but seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Jesus did not preach, Those with great faith repent and believe the gospel, but rather, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Paul did not preach in Acts 17.30, God now commandeth all men of great faith to repent, but rather, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The Bible does not say, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of great faith. But rather, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you feel your faith is weak or insufficient, do not be discouraged. Any true faith is a gift of God. Don't bury your gift. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. Look to Jesus Christ. Call out to Him. Your faith may be weak, but weak faith will not be rejected. In every area, we are deficient, but Christ is sufficient. It's not the strength of our faith that saves, but the strength of our Savior. That in all things He might receive honor and praise and glory for all of eternity. Well, so far this morning, we have seen Jairus come to Jesus in his time of need. Jesus did not marvel at his faith, but Jesus also did not reject him. Though his faith may not have been as strong as another, yet it was fixed on Jesus Christ. They exercised his faith in Jesus. But his faith would be tried. 
In verses 49 through 50, we see the trial of faith. The trial of faith. In Luke 8, verses 43 through 48, we have the account of the unnamed woman that we studied last week. Now, as Jesus was making his way through this crowd of people that thronged him while he was on his way to the home of Jairus, a woman came up behind him and touched him. And then Jesus stopped and he asked, who touched me? And we saw last week that interaction that followed, first between Jesus and Peter, and then between Jesus and this unnamed woman. But what we did not consider last week was that in the midst of all this, Jairus is waiting for Jesus. Have you ever been in a rush to go somewhere and get something done, and there's someone with you who is slowing you down? Maybe you've had this experience with with one of your children, or a niece, or a nephew, or a grandchild. You're walking along with them, you're going somewhere, you have things to do, you have a priority, something you're, you're headed towards. And they're walking along with you, but all of a sudden they stop. Because they, I mean, they saw, they saw a rock, or a stick, or a bug, right? something very interesting. They, they had to stop and look at it. Now, you didn't even notice that thing, because you have different priorities. You had something you were planning to do, but they have a totally different set of priorities. And so they notice this thing, and they stop to take a look at it. Well, so it was for Jairus and Jesus. Jairus' priority was to get Jesus to his home quickly, before his daughter died, so that Jesus could heal her. Jesus' priority was to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was for Jesus to stop and have this interaction with this woman. I wonder how Jairus felt when Jesus stopped. Imagine if you had a daughter who was sick to the point of death. The child was nearly gone. You knew that time was short, but you have Jesus with you. He is coming to heal your daughter. You're rushing to get through this crowd to get back to your daughter, and as you're going along, suddenly you realize Jesus is gone. Where'd he go? You turn around and you see him, and he's talking to this woman. He stopped to talk to someone who was already healed. Were we in Jairus' position, we might be tempted to say, Lord, I appreciate your concern, but this woman isn't dying. My daughter is dying. Time is short. You can come back and talk to her later, but please now come to my home and heal my daughter. We're not told what Jairus was thinking during the events recorded in Luke 8, verses 43 to 48, but verse 49 tells us what happened while Jesus was speaking to this unnamed woman. While this was going on, Jairus received news that his daughter had died. Look at verse 49. While he, that is, while Jesus yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. If you've ever received news like that, you know how hard it can be to process. Receive news that a loved one has died. The faint glimmer of hope that Jairus had was snuffed out. His daughter was dead. He was too late. He no longer needed to hurry Jesus to his home. The messenger said, Trouble not the master. Practically, for us, we need to guard against this attitude. How often do we go to Jesus in time of need or crisis? But then when that crisis is past or the situation seems beyond any hope or remedy, we think, well, I I won't trouble Jesus with this anymore. 
We might not actually say that or even form that thought in our heads, but often it comes out in our actions. We stop praying. We stop seeking the Lord. Where we had before been desperate and earnest, we become apathetic and resigned. I don't know the details of every difficult circumstance you are facing. But I do know that whatever your troubles are, you can bring them to the Master, casting all your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. Never have this thought. Don't trouble the Master. No. Bring your troubles to Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jairus say when he received word that his daughter had died? How did he react? We're not told. Maybe he cried out. Maybe he was stunned. Maybe he began to weep. The only indication we have of how Jairus responded is found in the words of Jesus in the following verse. In verse 50, Jesus spoke to Jairus. And when Jesus heard it, he answered, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. But when Jesus heard it, though Jesus had stopped to speak to the woman who was healed, he was still attentive to what was happening with Jairus. As we saw last week, Jesus did not need to be informed about these events. He knew what was going to take place. He knew that God the Father would use this for His glory. So often, we are surprised by tragedy. But tragedy does not surprise God. They do not derail God's plans. Our view is so limited. There are so many things that we don't understand, that we can't understand We do not have the thoughts of God, nor the ways of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Please listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because this is important and very practical in the Christian life. We don't need to understand what God is doing in all these circumstances of our lives in order to trust Him. We don't need to understand everything about God in order to trust Him. The Gospel is enough. God's authority, power, goodness, righteousness, holiness, justice, mercy, love, patience, kindness, all these things and more are demonstrated, proven, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are facing something in your life that's difficult, something that you don't understand, something that you can't understand, don't make an idol out of it. Don't put it above God. Don't say, because I can't understand this thing, or how God could use this, or why God has allowed this, then I can't trust God. That's making an idol out of your troubles. The the question of God's love for you is settled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't look to your troubles. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid, but believe. Well, when Jesus heard it, when he heard about Jairus' troubles, he was aware, and he was in control. Now look at what Jesus said to Jairus in verse 50. Fear not. Again, this is the only indication that we have of how Jairus responded to the devastating news that his daughter was dead. And as soon as Jesus heard what was said, he turned to Jairus and he says, Fear not. 
So often, fear is our first response to troubles and trials. Something bad happens, and the immediate temptation is to give way to fear. Going back to the parable of the soils, this is one of the ways that the cares of this life try to choke out faith. Jairus was at a critical junction at this moment. Would his faith stand in the trial, or would it be choked out? And at this critical moment, Jesus encouraged him with this command. Fear not. Fear not. It's the most common command that we find in Scripture. We are by nature inclined to fear. Before the fall, there was no fear. There was nothing to be afraid of. Sin brought fear, negative fear, into God's creation. And fear is a powerful force. But once again, we're to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there we find a greater force. Love. Love. 1 John 4.18 tells us, Perfect love casteth out fear. Fear not. Jesus continued in verse 50, Believe only, and she shall be made whole. Jairus had come to Jesus when the situation with his daughter was desperate. And now the situation appears hopeless. But Jesus encouraged Jairus with this promise, Believe only, and she will be made whole. If you believe, what do you have to fear? What limit is there to the power of God? When we are resting on the promises of God's Word, we can boldly confess, like the faithful Hebrews before King Nebuchadnezzar, our God, whom we serve, He is able to deliver us. God delights in accomplishing the impossible on behalf of His people to demonstrate His power for His honor and for His glory. Now, we're not told how Jairus responded to Jesus or what he said. But we do know this. His faith did not fail. With Christ's command came the power to obey. Jairus did not give place to fear. He did not give in to despair. Though his daughter was dead, though the cause seemed hopeless, he believed Jesus. How do we know? We know he believed because he continued. He continued. He did not send Jesus away. They continued on together to his house. Once again, we see that true faith does not always look strong, magnificent, victorious, marvelous, impressive. Sometimes it is all that we can do to continue putting one foot in front of the other. But true faith persists. Believing the promises of God, trusting Him, we obey. Faith and obedience. This is the life of faith. Well, we've seen the exercise of faith. Jairus went to Jesus, believing that Jesus could heal his daughter. We've seen the trial of faith. Jairus received word that his daughter had died. But he did not give way to fear or despair. Jesus said to him, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Though his faith was tried, it did not fail. True faith persists in the midst of trials, and the faith of Jairus remained. Well, now in the last few verses of Luke 8, we see the triumph of faith. The triumph of faith, verses 51 through 56. Verse 51 tells us that Jesus chose witnesses for this miracle. Now you remember, a large crowd of people have been with Jesus. Jesus has been making his way through this crowd to get to the home. But when he arrived, he sent them away. 
Most of the disciples also were told to wait outside. Jesus only allowed Peter, James, and John to enter along with the parents of the girl. Now, some critics of the Bible have suggested that Jesus sent the crowds away because he didn't want to expose this miracle to their scrutiny. But there's no reason to believe that. Jesus raised both the widow's son and Lazarus in public before large crowds of people. It seems that on this occasion, Jesus limited the number of people present out of care and concern for this family. The daughter is dead. The mourning has begun. And you can imagine how difficult this time was for Jairus and his wife. They're still dealing with that initial shock of their daughter's death. Jesus had no interest in making a spectacle out of this family's tragedy. He was going to work a miracle on their behalf. And it was sufficient for the time that only a small number were present as witnesses. Jesus even instructed the parents in verse 56 not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, 2,000 years later, we read this account and we rejoice in the miraculous power demonstrated by Jesus Christ. But at that time, these three disciples and the parents of this girl were a sufficient number of witnesses. I also want to point out that this is the first time that we see these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, singled out by Jesus to witness something that the other disciples did not get to witness. These three formed an inner circle, even among the twelve. Jesus would interact with these men separately several times throughout his earthly ministry. And this is the first record of that special interaction that's recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. Jesus sent the crowd away. Another reason why Jesus may have turned some of the multitude away is seen in verses 52 through the first part of verse 54. We see the hostile reaction of the mourners. Again, the mourning had already started. Verse 52 begins, And all wept and bewailed her. There may have been other family members and friends who were present and mourning the death of this child. But from Matthew's account, we also know that there were professional mourners who were present. Now this was a part of Jewish mourning rites since ancient times. Professional mourners are mentioned several places in the Old Testament. And these mourners were often musicians, and they would go to a home where someone had just died, And some of them would play their instruments, and others of them would loudly weep and wail. The professional mourners in our text, they had beaten Jesus to the home of the bereaved. They got there first. By the time Jesus arrived, they had already started their wailing. It's likely news had spread that this little girl was sick unto death, and they had been standing by, ready to begin their work of mourning as soon as she died. But when Jesus came, he brought them good news. Look at what Jesus said to them in verse 52. Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. Jesus often used language like this to refer to people who were dead. Jesus said the same thing of Lazarus after he had died. He sleeps. Applied particularly to this little girl, what a comfort these words should have been. She would not remain dead. Jesus would soon return her to life and to full health. To those who knew her and loved her, it would be as if she had only slept for a short time. But the words of Jesus could also be applied to all believers who die. Weep not. They are not dead, but sleepeth. As Christians, we do not sorrow as those that have no hope. To die is but to rest from the toils of this life and to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we will not remain dead. There is coming a day of resurrection. These mortal bodies will put on immortality. 
Christ's work of salvation will be perfected in every sphere. Jesus defeated sin and death, and not even our physical bodies will be left under the consequences of sin. Our bodies will be raised again to the glory of God. Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. But comforting words from Jesus. How well they must have been received. Now look at verse 53. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. They laughed him to scorn. Their mourning was turned to laughter. However, it is not laughter of joy, but rather of derision. What fool is this who calls a dead person sleeping? They had seen the girl. They knew she was dead. There was no question about it. She's dead. What do you mean she sleeps? They laughed him to scorn. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Jesus had cast these pearls of comfort and encouragement before this crowd of mourners, but they trampled them underfoot and then turned upon Christ. Jesus did not try to convince these scorners. He had not come for their sake. He had come to help this girl. He had given them good news, and they rejected it and scorned the messenger. So Jesus made them leave. The first part of verse 54 tells us, He put them all out. Well, when the mourners had been put out, Jesus turned to the girl. Verse 54 tells us, He took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. Touching a dead body was a defiling act under the Mosaic Law. If you touched a dead body, you became ritually unclean. Numbers 19, verse 11. He that toucheth a dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. And Jesus touched a dead body. Under the Mosaic Law, Jesus was now cut off from the ceremonial part of the law for seven days. Under the law, to be unclean was to be separated from that ritual and ceremonial part of the law. You could not partake in the ceremonies that God had given to the nation of Israel. But those things were only a shadow. The substance of the law had come and was now standing in that room in the bodily presence of Jesus Christ. When Jesus touched this girl, she did not make him unclean. When Jesus touched this girl, he gave her life. Once again, we see Jesus demonstrating by his actions that he was the fulfillment of the law. And by extension, he showed that the gospel he preached was the fulfillment of the law. Superior to it in every way, as the substance is superior to the shadow. Well, when Jesus said, made, arise, what happened? Look at verse 55. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. Jesus had told her to do what she had no power to do. She was dead. She had no ability to rise. But Jesus' power accomplished the command. She arose, not in her own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ, who mercifully worked on her behalf. Now look at the reaction of Jairus and his wife in verse 56. We're told they were astonished. As you can imagine, they were astonished. This is the triumph of faith. We've seen the exercise of faith. Jairus came to Jesus, believing that Jesus could heal his daughter. We've seen the trial of faith. 
Jairus received word that his daughter had died. And in that moment of crisis, Jesus encouraged his faith and Jairus pressed on. And now we see the triumph of faith. Jesus did what he said he would do. He made Jairus' daughter whole. In a marvelous demonstration of his power, he restored life to this girl. And Jairus was astonished. Not at his faith, but at the work of Jesus Christ. Look back over your life and consider what God has done. Can you join Jairus and be astonished? Not at your faith, but at the work of Jesus Christ. Be astonished at your salvation. Be astonished at your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness. Be astonished at the promises of God. Be astonished at the faithfulness of God. Our faith is never triumphant because of something we do, but because of what Christ has done. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You. Oh, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for the Gospel, the doing, the dying, and the rising of Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, for the power of the Gospel to accomplish what we have no power to accomplish, but to raise us from death to life in Christ. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here who is not yet a Christian, that the Word of God would find purchase in their hearts and lives, or that You would do a work that only You can do of grace and drawing that one to You. Lord, we thank You that as believers, the Gospel is the sustaining force in our lives as we seek to honor and to glorify You. Lord, may we never look to ourselves. May we never draw confidence from what we have done or or from our faith or anything like that, but only in looking to You the sufficiency of the gospel, the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives, in every difficulty that we face. May we look to you in your finished work, the triumph of our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.